This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Oh my God, Jack. I literally just got my nails done and it is so cold in Cleveland. So frigid. The sun has barely been out. This is the first day in I think a week that the sun has been out. And I got this like really pretty neutral color. And now that I'm home in my cold temp, it almost looks purple because my nails look purple. We got to get out of here. Wow. That color is not in right now, I don't think. But hey, you know, (laughs) it's fine. I know it is not, it is not much better here in Chicago. It is like so cold that I don't even want to go get my nails done. It is, it is pretty brutal. I am like really craving some warm weather. I don't know. What about you? I think we need a girl's trip. I think we need a beach trip. And, you know, I think we need to take Dr. Bellardo on that. I think we need to take some of our followers on that. Some of our listeners. I think we need to make something happen because, you know, Dr. Bellardo might be one of the smartest women we have ever had on the podcast, but that girl likes to have some fun. Yes, she does. <laughs> and I think we need to find a beach somewhere and have some fun. It's all about balance, right? It's all about balance. <laughs> exactly. We got to have some balance. So we hope that you guys enjoy this episode. This is part two of our two-part series with Dr. Danielle Bellardo. So be sure to go back and listen to part one. We also have another episode with Dr. Bellardo from a few seasons ago that kind of just kind of starts to touch on all of her mastery in preventative cardiology. But again, this is part two with Dr. Bellardo. She is a board-certified cardiologist on the board of directors at the American Society for Preventative Cardiology, a speaker, Polish researcher, owns her own practice in LA. We are so grateful to have her on. We hope you enjoy part two with Dr. Bellardo. We will catch you on the other side. And then you add that piece in with like the celebrities that, you know, potentially don't really need these medications, but you see these drastic results and there's so much gossip about how they lost the weight. It has to be Ozempic. And I think it trickles down into, you know, just regular people who may not need that. It may not be like realistic or effective way to lose, you know, those last five or 10 pounds. Right. Mm -hmm. But you feel this like pressure or like this, like there's this other way. I'm curious, like in your practice, then do you see that at all? Like the, the kind of like, not like lying about BMI, because how would you know, but do you see patients that like come in asking for it or asking about it and they don't qualify? 
And how, how do you like have that conversation? Well, so I will say, so it depends. So actually what's interesting is that compared to weight loss medications of the past, like uh, fentermine, and I say mm-hmm. by the past because they should be in the past and they're- Fentermine is awful. It's awful. As a cardiologist, I say as the past, even though some of the major weight loss centers in the United States in academic sure. institutions still prescribe fentermine. Why mm-hmm. is that? Because it's generic. Why is that? Because they don't have to spend the time doing prior offs. I mean, it just drives me insane. But Fentermine as a cardiologist is awful. I mean, I literally will see patients who come in off Fentermine and they have atrial tachycardia because of it. It's just like beyond frustrating. But the weight loss medications of the past were super dangerous. Now, this advent of weight loss medications, GLP-1s, incredibly safe, effective. You know, we just had the SELECT trial come out in November which showed us that it reduces risk of heart attack and stroke in people without diabetes with coronary disease by by 20% in a year, which is pretty phenomenal. I mean, it's a game changer. These people without, so we've known for years that people with diabetes from the sustained trials that it reduces stroke, heart attack risk, et cetera. Mm -hmm. trial is the first one that shows that this class of medications reduces heart attack and stroke risk in people without diabetes with coronary disease by 20% a year and all cause mortality by, I think it was 16 or 18%. It's pretty unbelievable. But that being said, so compared to just putting someone who's like, you know, been on like a fentermine or something, if someone wanted to lose five or 10 pounds, is it safer for them to go on this medication? Hypothetically, I'm, I'm talking about outside of someone with like disordered eating. That is an entirely different bag of issue that needs to be addressed by psychiatrists and by therapists. Is it a uh, quote unquote, safer than the medications of the past? Yes. But that being said, should people be doing it across the board? No, right? There's a reason why the FDA criteria is what it is to Mm -hmm. lose weight. But what's interesting is that the criteria is actually different based on um, in many different variables, such as, you know, ethnicity. So for example, so people of Southeast Asian and Asian uh, ethnicity, they're actually BMI that's considered overweight, which puts them at risk for metabolic syndrome is actually 23. So what's unbelievable, right? So for patients that, so I just saw a a patient yesterday of Southeast Asian ethnicity, and they essentially have, you know, everything you can imagine with metabolic syndrome, high triglycerides, hypertension, hemoglobin A1C was 3.6, and their BMI was 24.2. If they were, you know, an individual who's white or black, the data shows that they are less likely to develop metabolic syndrome until they get into a BMI greater than um, 27. But for people with um, different genetics and different ethnicity, it actually does change the variable. So it's kind of not a one-size-fits-all approach because you have to evaluate the person's metabolic health and risks. Um, You have to evaluate the person's ethnicity and genetic background and also their own personal cardiovascular risks. And one thing that's really interesting, so these medications are meant to be used long-term and not saying that that being said, it is totally false that everyone has to stay on them forever. It's just that the research does show us when they looked at the step extension trial, that when people go off the medication, about three fourths regain the weight they lost, not more, but regain the weight they lost within a year. Mm. That being said, I see plenty of patients in my practice who come off the medication that do absolutely fine, especially if they build lean muscle mass while they're losing the weight and eating healthy, things like that. And so someone may say, well, this patient's BMI is now 21. Why are you you know, continuing the medication? Well, it's actually what this medication is meant for, right? So mm-hmm. you know, the medication is meant for long-term because obesity is a chronic disease. And one of the biggest things that I have seen improve drastically in my patients, 
are patients who have spent their entire lives fighting food noise. And the thing is, is that people who do not struggle with food noise, um, and I'm one of them, I don't struggle with food noise. I've been lucky to just be thin. But at the same time, I know that that's genetics, right? And that has a lot to do with something that has nothing to do with personal self-control. But my patients have struggled with food noise their entire lives. The biggest thing that they have seen improve, more than being able to fit into size, whatever, or anything, is their mental health, is their mm-hmm. quality of life. And yeah. I think that the way we look at binge eating disorder, and I think that the way we look at a lot of food, I think it's going to be so archaic. You know, I have patients who traveled around the country for binge eating disorder, seeing every cognitive behavioral specialist going on every single, you know, a psych recommended medication for it and did not find a resolution to their symptoms until they started a GLP-1. And their quality wow. of life has improved drastically. So now there's uh, there's really promising research. There was um, initial studies with loraglutide, which is a previous class of the medications with binging sort of that looks promising. They're doing studies now, both terzepatide and semaglutide on it. But I can say from just pure, um, and you know, anecdotes are the lowest form of evidence. It's my other favorite line. But <laughs> I can say that I do believe it's promising based on the prior data and what we're going to be, you know, seeing um, and hopefully will bore out in the research that's coming out um, soon is that this is a game changer for every patient who has struggled with weight their entire lives who said to me, this was the first holiday season that I could just enjoy food. Wow. And the thing is, is that if you don't experience that, if that's not part of your life, then you can't understand how much of an impact that makes for someone. And to me, I'm an Italian, food is super important. It's cultural. It's it's social. It is brings joy. And one thing that when I started prescribing these medications, I was like one of the early adopters of using these medications in cardiology practice. One thing that I worried about was, will this take away the joy from eating? Because I don't think that's worth it, right? Because I, I think that joy around eating has to be, it's a cultural, it's a, a social experience. It's, mm-hmm. it's a huge part of quality of life. And what I found, it does not at all take away wow. the joy of eating. People who have struggled so much about having to, you know, figure out, can I, I have to eat a big salad before I go to this party. Otherwise I'm going to eat all these snacks or I can't eat a little bite of dessert because I want to eat the whole thing. It takes away the diet wars are over. Like people do not have to go on an only low carb diet or an only vegan diet or a Weight Watchers diet, or people can just eat healthfully, but also enjoy the food they love without that food noise. Now, is that right for every person on the planet? Should everyone be on this? Of course not. But there are particular people who have struggled with this their whole lives where it is a game changer. And I will tell you, every patient I have, even if their LDL comes down by 70 points, even if their hemoglobin A1C normalizes, even if they lose 50 pounds and they can fit into their clothes, all the things like equal, the most important thing to them is how they feel with their mental health, hands Mm -hmm. down. They're like, I have more time and more energy in my brain instead of to be planning how many calories I need to be eating and planning mm-hmm. how much you know I, I need to be doing. I can just enjoy my kids and live in the moment. And people could blame you know diet culture for that. And I agree, there's plenty of things that are toxic with diet culture that have preyed on people. But at the end of the day, as a cardiologist, I see the repercussions of obesity with regards to the way it can cause people we you know to have hypertension, to have high cholesterol, to have heart failure, to have certain cancer risks. And so, you know, not everyone is losing weight just because of aesthetics. Mm -hmm. Um, Plenty of people are just sick of fighting against this food noise in their brain. And that's why these medications are so powerful because they work Mm -hmm. in the hypothalamic pituitary axis 
and the GLP receptors in the brain, and they help to improve satiety and reduce um, hunger and increase fullness there. And what's really interesting is they're also finding there's lots of preliminary data that it reduces the desire to drink any alcohol. And so really? actually now studying- I've wow. heard that too, yeah. Yeah, so now they have, I think there's like three trials ongoing right now for semaglutide specifically, for Ozempic, we go be for, uh, specifically in alcohol use, like so even outside of- wow. And then other things, finding a reduction in other like excitement-seeking behaviors, like gambling, shopping addiction, things like that. And so that's I really so do interesting. It's a yeah, it's a game changer. And I think that these medications unfortunately get demonized because of essentially these online med spas that just prescribe them willy-nilly, which is unfortunate because there's lots of people who do get you know durable benefit from it. It's just seeing a physician who can see the forest for the trees and make sure that they're going to be able to prescribe this to you in the safest, most you know, evidence-based way. Well, how's your mom? We cannot get her on any anything yeah. because they're like it changes her medicaid or medicare whatever to say that she's diabetic and she's not diabetic but she's a great doctor like my parents love this right, doctor right, she right, cares right, so right. much about them but like yeah, yeah. for whatever reason like we cannot no, get there, this, like covered for her super no it's i totally understand especially shout out to primary care any like providers nps pas mds dos everyone primary care nurses out there. I mean, they have the hardest job possible. Mm-hmm. They have to deal with a gazillion things. And it's just, it's a lot. They have so much going on. There are some insurances that are a, a hard wall for this. One of them is unfortunately Medicare, which is insane. Mm-hmm. Medicare does not approve obesity medications. It is absurd that our own government is so restrictive with regards to something that, and I think that this will change because the okay. select trial is going to, I mean, you, how can you deny a medication that reduces cardiovascular right. stroke and heart attack? Right. right. Mm-hmm. So the advocacy, things are changing, but I will say for most commercial insurance and actually Medicaid in California, this is wild. In California, Medicaid, any patients that are on Medicaid get um, Ozempic, Wicovi, or Terzepatide. It depends on which one they're um, indicated for. Zero copay. Wow. But Medicare... Wow. Is not, so Medicaid is state to state. So that varies. California is very robust, amazing system for that. But Medicare is nationwide and they do not cover GLP-1s for weight management, which is absurd because that falls into the scope of we're waiting till someone gets type 2 diabetes to treat it rather than preventing it and also preventing mm-hmm. all the other milieu of, of things that um, go into it. Is she is Medicare her primary insurance? Mm-hmm. Oh my God. I know. It's so frustrating. I know she's really frustrated with it because I mean, she's just struggled for so long and, you know, I'm, and I'm, I'm convinced myself that, you know, I feel like our parents hide things from us because they don't want to worry us. And I, I feel like there's probably more going on than what she's letting on with some things, but yeah, it's just been really frustrating for like a large population that is on Medicare that can't get these medications that will help get them off other medications and live like a healthier, longer life. So it's so frustrating. And speaking of being like, I mean, cause all three of us are in healthcare, being our parents, like with aging parents, being our parents, like healthcare provider. I mean, it's a challenge. A, mm-hmm. One little funny story that'll make you laugh. My parents are like, 
just super healthy runners do all these things. But my dad has coronary artery disease, which like is just, you know, he has high lipoprotein. It's kind of, you know, um, lipoprotein was diagnosed when I was in med school. He had to get a stent. Anyway, he's a runner, super healthy, fine. My dad's been on stat. I, you know, obviously I have my dad on statins forever. So uh, my dad ended up getting back surgery. And before his back surgery, because I sent him to an orthopedic surgeon that I know at the University of Pennsylvania. And before the surgery, I got like his notes, like everything pre-op wise um, from my dad's primary care doctor. And in the primary care doctor's note, this poor primary care doctor wrote, Aldo is not taking his statins because they've been giving him muscle cramps, but do not tell his daughter who is a cardiologist. <gasps> does not want his daughter who's a cardiologist in California to know. Um, make sure, you know, like daughter does, he does not want daughter to know. I saw this and I was like, dad, how long have you been lying to me? About your like, and my dad was like, I told you it gave me muscle pain. And you told me that I was fine. Suck it up. <laughs> right. And so what I did was, and I was like, you know, what made me realize I was like, because to a patient, if a patient told me they had muscle pain from a statin, I would be like, so like I would do, you know, we would do the protocol where you figure out the statin intolerance, which is, we'll say that for a different time, but you do a washout, all these things. With my dad, I was like, oh, shut up, dad. You're fine. Like it's, <laughs> your muscles hurt because you ran. It doesn't hurt as much as a heart attack, dad. Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> and your muscles hurt because you ran five miles yesterday. Like you're fine. But what I should have done is actually listened to him. And so what I did was um, like the best cardiologist in the world, his name is Harris Jarrett. He was my uh, chief resident when I was in residency. I sent my parents to him. And now my dad listens to everything he says. So now my dad's on glycerin instead because he doesn't, him and statins don't tolerate well. But the funniest part was seeing in the primary care doctor's note, she must have, she was so sweet and she felt so bad, but it said note, like, Aldo does not want da- daughter in California who's a cardiologist to know he has not been taking his son. That is so. <laughs> cannot doctor our parents. We can't. No, we really no. can't. We really can't. No. I've been trying. Yeah, me too. And then you find I know that's what my holiday was. Literally, just like my, both my parents were like, okay, here's my epic. Like, look through my labs. Did my doctors miss anything? Like, can you read this? And my twin sister's a midwife too. So, like, her and I are both like hovering over the computer, like, okay, well, what do you think about this? So, what do you think about this? Okay, no, you're good. But, like, are you taking your meds? Dad, why is your A1C still like this number? Like, you got to get that down. I think the key though, now that I have my parents seeing, I've been both seeing my friend and now he's on them for everything. He's like, I've been harassing your dad. He needs his follow-up colonoscopy on each thing. And I'm like, this is like now my proxy. Now I can be like, um, can you please make sure my parents are doing this? Because they won't listen to me. So, you know, <sighs> set them up with a doctor, you know, who will be firm with them and that they'll listen to. That's what I did. My friend Harris has a British accent. I think that helps for some reason. Oh, yeah. British is accent. Is he single? Really- <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, he's married. But. I do feel like it gets, it gets the, like, there's like an authoritative recommendation. And my parents suddenly, my dad will be like, oh no, I, yeah, I'm, I started this other medication. Dr. Jarrett put me on it. And I was like, dad, like you, you wouldn't listen to me for 10 years. And like, I speak all over the yep. world on this topic, but it's a okay. <laughs> <sighs> man. You are just the coolest. I love your brain oh, you're so, so much. Funny. I feel like there's so many more questions that like I want to ask you around this, especially with, okay, you know, we're just going to do it. So I feel like one of the things that I've seen lately that has been getting like a lot of hate slash attention is there's like 
new trials studying these medications in the pediatric populations to try and help with childhood obesity, which can lead and be like major precursors for their cardiac pulmonary health and diabetes. So it's one of those wild things to me that's like, we say so many things like pregnant women can't use because who's going to do the testing on pregnant women. But now that we're like doing like clinical trials and testing things out with children, like how do you like help? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not pediatrics, but I will say yeah. that. So we go is FDA approved for children 12 and up. They did the randomized okay. controlled trials already. And it was found to be safe and effective in children over the age of 12. I don't do pediatrics, so I would definitely say it's outside of my expertise. But I will say one thing is that the physicians I know in pediatrics think that it is an incredible tool for certain patients in their population. I think that this is where the nuance is, right? So I think that people think it's like, well, you guys were saying now everyone should be on it. We should just put it in the water. No, that's not exactly the case. Mm -hmm. But there are certain patients in certain scenarios where it may be beneficial. And the truth is, is if that parent and that child doesn't want to go on it, there is absolutely no doctor who's going to be forcing anyone to take these medications. This is a choice. Everything about patient-centered care has to do with, we make a recommendation based on evidence, and the patient and the family decides whether or not that works for them. That is 100% shared decision-making, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's not like a, a parent has to feel pressured to put their child on mm -hmm. this medication, but the most appropriate thing is if it was a child that say was appropriate for the medication, you know, they discuss, you have to discuss the risks, the benefits, and the potential unknown risks, the potential unknown benefits, all these things, and weigh that together to see if it's beneficial. I will say that my friends in pediatrics who do use these medications, you know, they speak a lot about how much, I, I and I think that I did not grow up as a child that dealt with weight. So I think that it breaks my heart to think about when they talk about some of their patients that have struggled with bullying and with, you know, dieting and, you know, they're already pre-diabetic and they already have high blood pressure and they're 12 and, and they already have high triglycerides and all these things. And I mean, it is so horrendous to blame a kid for that. And mm -hmm, I think that mm -hmm. what these medications do is they- Or their parents. Or the parents. What these medications do is they- through the physiology of understanding the way the, the mechanisms and the way these medications work is understanding that a lot of obesity is genetically related. A lot of it, not a hundred percent, but a very, John Speakman has done, uh, you know, a lot of great research in this. And um, it's a lot of, of obesity is genetic. And so there's genetic factors. There's of course, environmental factors, there's epigenetics, there's social factors, there's economic factors, all of these things that contribute but genetics is a huge portion of it. And the way I view it as a cardiologist, you know, if you have a child that has familial hyperlipidemia, a homozygous version of FH, you don't even blink about treating that kid with a medication, right? Because it's genetic. So we say, you have homozygous FH, of course you're going to treat that child. You don't want them to have a heart attack at 21. Why do we make obesity such a moral, it's so stigmatized in the way we treat it as a moral failing which is so unfair to the patients who suffer with it. And we make mm -hmm. it into a just try harder. If I sat around and tried to tell my patients with hyperlipidemia, with genetic etiologies of hyperlipidemia, just try, will your cholesterol down? Well, uh, they may be missing a few genes there that can do that. Like, you know, and it's because obesity is complex and nuanced and multifactorial that the genetic portion hasn't been given 
enough weight. And it's what's unfair is that, you know, will this medication be the perfect solution for every patient who, you know, struggles with obesity? Of course not. But the option of it and the benefits and the risks should be discussed because in many patients, you know, it can be life-changing, especially mm-hmm. for a child who's suffering with already the medical sequelae of their obesity. And it, it should just be an option. We have to stop making this obesity into and weight management into a moral failure and understanding that the physiology behind it is far more complex and that we should be giving patients options. Doesn't mean that they're leaving every appointment with the script, but you should be just discussing the options, benefits, risks, and letting it be a shared decision. I want to point out what you said earlier too, because I love what you said about we need to stop making obesity a failure of our our moral compass. Like like we need to move away from that language. And that reminds me of how you've just been describing obesity as a chronic health condition. So when people ask you, oh, well, don't you have to stay on these medications for life or for, you know, long-term, that's like that. I feel like that's like one of the biggest questions that people are asking right now. Do you have to stay on this long-term? Am I going to be on this forever? Well, If you're taking a step back and looking at obesity as a chronic condition, well, then, you know, that maybe that's your answer. So I I would, I kind of want to ask a little bit more on that because I know that is such a common question about, do I need to stay on this medication forever? Amazing question. So this is like the number one question I get. I answer it every single day. So any of my patients who are listening to the podcast, once it's shared, they're going to be like, yep, she said those exact same words to me. (laughs) (laughs) Whenever we talk about how long you need to be on the medication, we always think, so everything in life as a physician, when you're practicing evidence-based medicine, the most important part is shared decision-making. So you are presenting the patient with, here's the data we have. Now, will that patient match exactly what is in the trial? Of course not, right? We cannot say for 100% certain that they are going to follow exactly what we saw in the trial. But what can we do to inform the decision? We can give them the data we have. So for every patient, I say, listen, obesity is a chronic disease. Now, there are chronic diseases that can go into remission with weight loss, lifestyle change, et cetera. For example, if a patient sees me with obesity and they have hypertension and prediabetes, for these patients, we know from all the research, they go on a GLP-1, the vast majority are able to put their hypertension into remission, and the vast majority are able to put their prediabetes into remission with weight loss. Now, I always say remission, we don't say reversal because it's still considered a chronic disease, but that patient could go on a GLP-1, they could lose a substantial amount of their body weight, and then they could get rid of, which is amazing, their hypertension medications, medications for diabetes or prediabetes, things like that. So in some ways, I always say you may be trading one medication for several. It depends on the scenario. But do you need to be on the medication forever? So the answer to that, I always say is, Well, I can tell you what the trials show. So the trials we have, as I mentioned before, is the STEP extension trial. What they did was they had people on Ozempic, Wegovies, with semaglutide. They were on the medication for a year. You know, they get to their 16% weight loss. And after a year, they randomized the people that were on the medication to either staying on the medication for another year or going off the medication for a year. The end of the two years, they looked at the people who stayed on the medication for another year. It was amazing. They had still lost 16%. They had maintained their 16% weight loss. 
So this was great news because we realized, okay, these medications are durable, they're effective. There was no increase in adverse events, safe for using chronically. Patients that went off the medication, three-fourths had regained the weight they had lost. Not more, but they had regained the weight they lost. Now I tell patients, this is what the clinical trial shows. Now what's going to happen for you? I always say, you know, first and foremost, the most important thing is when it comes to being on a medication, you know, when you're evaluating risks versus benefits, you want to think of, okay, is the risk on the medication better for me than the risk not being on the medication, right? So for some patients, the risks not being on the medication, especially because weight can be incredibly challenging to control, could be hyperlipidemia, hypertension, prediabetes. We know from the SELECT trial now that, you know, in people without diabetes who actually already have coronary disease, it reduces their risk of the number one cause of death, heart attack and stroke. I mean, people, heart disease doesn't get enough, you know, airtime, I think, um, no. but it's the no. number one, it's not even just the number one, it's the number one through 10 cause of death. And then everything else falls off, you know, later on, but heart attack and stroke by 20% in a year, all cause mortality reduces all cause, death from any cause. So do I believe these medications are safe? Yes. But then I say to be on long-term, but when you ask, okay, well, what about these medications? How long have they been out? Well, then you say, okay, the class of medications first came out in 2006. So far, you know, all the concerns about thyroid cancer, that is based on preclinical research in rats, has never actually bore out in the human trial data. So, so far, do we have safety in this class of medications since 2006, almost 20 years? Yes. For each individual medication, well, Ozempic has been out since 2016, so we have eight years of safety data for that. For Zepatide, which is Monjaro, and uh, Zepbound has been out since you know, 2020. So we have, you know, safety data. So it's an individual risk benefit ratio, but at the same time, so I always say that with the preface of, is it safe to be on long-term? Well, this is what we know about being on it long-term. So far, things look safe, not only safe, but it reduces multiple causes of the most common causes of death. That's one arm of it. But at the same time, I also say, but you have to stay on it forever. And the answer to that is absolutely not because that is up to you, right? It's a personal decision. For, for whatever reason, the patient may decide, I don't want to stay on forever. It's not a life sentence the day you get your first medication. And why I want to explain that as clearly as I can is that, could you be on it for as long as, as you'd like? Do I believe it's safe that the benefits outweigh the risks for the vast majority of patients? Absolutely. But right. you have to be. The answer is no. And then we go into, well, if you do decide you want to go off the medication, what does the research show us about optimizing things once you lose weight? to help you go off the medication if possible. And maintain now, it, maintain the health. And maintain it. And here's yeah. the thing, you could do like all the things I'm going to tell you, you could do all these things. I have patients that do every single one of these things and they still end up being like, they do a trial off of it and they say, the food noise is back for my own mental health. I want to go back on. Mm -hmm. And we say, sure, go ahead. You know, every patient has to see their physician and make its shared decision-making. But we do know from the data, the things that are going to maximize, you know, your likelihood to be able to either down titrate the dose or go off the medication is strength training. So building muscle mass, one of the most important mm -hmm. things for longevity in life. And this comes from me. I'm someone that loves cardio and I've had to like force speed myself strength training, even though I hate it, <laughs> but it is the best thing we can do for all of us for health in general but also strength training, super important for weight loss. You want to build muscle mass. When someone's losing weight, um, whether they're losing weight on these medications or through any other form, 
Usually on scale, on the scale, the average that they're, when you look at the number drop on the scale, on average, it's usually about 70% adipose tissue, about 30% muscle mass. And so you want to try to aim that as much as possible to make it more adipose tissue, less uh, muscle mass. So you want to focus on strength training. It's not only important for, you know, helping with your metabolism and helping with weight maintenance, because it really does help with weight maintenance, but it's also important for longevity, for health, for many, many reasons, for frailty, for all of these things as we age. Strength training, and then also eating, you know, a really using the time you're on the medication to make some really robust dietary changes, you know, eating a really high fiber, you know, plant predominant diet, lean proteins, and things that, you know, changing some of your diet. Now, all that being said, do I have some patients that have done that and maintained off the medication and done great? Yes. But do I have other patients that have done that and wanted to go back on? Yes. And the truth is, is there's no right or wrong answer. It is just what is best for them. So I always say, literally, it's going to be how you feel. There's no right or wrong way. Both of them are right. Absolutely, both of them are right. Because it just depends on what's best for you. And the truth is, is that we're going to find more research as we go on what, what it looks like more longer term, meaning, you know, I have a question, a research question that I can't wait to be investigated. I have seen patients in my practice who, you know, once they hit their goal weight and they've been at their goal weight on this medication, they hit like the two year threshold. Those are patients that I see something changes, like they can go off the medication. And it's almost like one of my patients compared it to gripping the steering wheel. She said, my whole life, anytime I've lost weight, she suffered with obesity her whole life. She said, anytime I've lost weight, because she's like, I've lost weight doing crash diets, grapefruit diet. Like the, what's the, what was that diet from the office that Kelly did that cracked me up? The lemon, oh my, the lemon cleanse, extra cleanse. Oh my god! Oh the yeah, ginger and the like maple syrup. Like, is that, yeah, is that the one? Yeah, that's the most insane diet ever. Like it's crazy. And so she's like, I've done all of them, and I've lost this same fifty pounds. She's like, I've lost ten times in my life, and she's like, Ugh. every time I lose the weight, I am gripping the steering wheel for my life mm. to not regain it. She goes, for the first time in my life, I've been able to let go. And she was so happy. And so some of my patients, though, you know, after a few years on the medication, you know, and this is where I'm saying this is 100% a hypothesis. And I'm saying I can't wait for it to be studied because I don't know. But I'm wondering if something happens with the hypothalamus that there's like almost a new set point for their weight or that their body Mm -hmm. stops fighting them to get back to that older weight. The longer I see these patients on the medication, the more I happen to see people finding it easier to do maintenance on the lowest dose possible, mm-hmm. you know, once every other week or patients who are able to go off it. Um, but that's only a hypothesis and we'll see with the research. At the end of the day, you know, it's a lot of trial and error for what's best for them. You know, I have patients that run, I have an ultra marathon runner and her husband is a um, Ironman athlete. When I tell you they run hundreds of miles a week, you know, the Ironman is you run a marathon, you swim two miles and you bike a hundred miles. Both of them had a BMI over 30. And both of them had, despite all this exercise, because exercise is incredibly healthful for you, but they were still struggling with their weight. It's completely understandable, right? Um, And they both wanted to lose weight because they were both starting to develop hypertension and some of other um, sequelae. Despite all the working out they were doing, they both improved drastically, you know, lost weight, everything on ZepBound, which is terzepatide. Um, and, uh, well, they were at first on Wegovy and then we switched them to ZepBound, but they're doing amazing. 
And the truth is, is that for them, they're doing all the exercise in the world. They're the perfect example of how metabolism is complex. Mm-hmm. And that I feel that these medications are the end of diet wars. They're going to ruin diet culture because instead of advertising some ridiculous fad, it's going to be something that can actually help people that need it and that will help them sustain their weight for a longer period of time. The only problem is is that the crazy diet culture is going to be replaced by the peddling of these medications in a medically inappropriate manner. And that's Mm -hmm. the part that to be really cracked down on. Yeah, I could not agree more. So I want to kind of close this out with um, a little more fun stuff because some of the things that you're talking about with the types of exercise people should be doing, the types of like foods and stuff like that, feel like, do you follow Dan Buettner? Do you know about Blue Zones? Have you? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. Yeah, he's great. The Blue Zones are interesting. You know, they're, they're a little controversial. Sometimes people like hate on them a bit. I, I find them interesting. I find his work really enjoying to read. And I think there's a lot to glean from it because mm-hmm. you're looking at these different populations that live long, healthy, happy lives. And it's interesting. The science evidence-based part of me, you know, recognizes it's not a randomized control trial. It's not a perspective right. cohort. The data isn't collected, you know, exactly. You know, so to me, I view it more as like something interesting, like an interesting mm-hmm. What I glean from it is that I think the most interesting part is to see how people across various different cultures who eat different macronutrient profiles, right? So if you look at Okinawa, Japan, they're eating massive amounts of carbohydrates. You look at Crete, Greece, they're eating massive amounts of polyunsaturated, monounsaturated fat. And Sardinia, like all the different regions have different macronutrient compositions, but all this like beautiful longevity. And the biggest things they have in common is eating lots of plants. So plant predominant diet low saturated fat, um, lean proteins, fish, but also even more importantly is activity. So they're Mm -hmm. staying active, whether it's walking or being active and it's community, it's social support. It's a lot of uh, community in regards to work community, but also home life community and community in general, a lot that we lack in like our, you know, modern society in many ways. And so there really is a lot to learn from it. And I think that we can all kind of aspire towards getting into that way. And I think it's also nice to see that there's many ways to do it, right? There's no Mm -hmm. perfect, I always say this, there's absolutely no one perfect diet. No one food in one dose is going to cause disease. There's no perfect one exercise. Strength training is important, absolutely. But even that, you know, if you absolutely don't want to do that, even though I would recommend trying to build muscle mass because there's so much data for it, even though I hate it, but there's so much data. Oh, I I like love hate it. I'm trying to get oh, back into it. You. When I was, I just hate it. I just hate it. I just hate it. I hate it. I just hate it. If when I could I just was... walk for the rest of my life and not do anything, <laughs> I would be genuinely happy. I just want to walk. No. I've actually been in denial of the data for so long because I was like, I don't want it to be true, but it is. Well, it's like, especially it now is. that we're getting older, like once you hit yes. your like upper 30s, low 40s, and... it's like, then you're like, well, shit. Now I really I have know. to pay attention. I know. Like, you got to worry about bone density. I know. But I love that. Like, like I love how you kind of approach the, these blue zones because I think overall it's such a just a great way to think about health and wellness and diet and all these things. And I think we talked about this last time with you, where I think like diet and nutrition people 
really like to argue over that last like 10% of the diet. Can we all just agree that for the most part, like eat a lot of fruits and and vegetables, find like good protein sources and, you know, healthy fats. And, you know, people like to argue over that last 10%. Like, do you need to be fully vegan? Do you need to be a pescatarian? Do you need to be? And it's like, we we agree on 90%. Why can't we just accept that? And I, I love the blue zones too, because I, you know, I know Dr. Bellardo, you're Italian as well. I still take care of my 95 year old Italian grandmother oh my and she is like so the quintessential what a blue zone person is. Oh my God. She is so funny. She's so funny. But you know, she spent her entire life as a hairdresser in the fifties and sixties, inhaling all these crazy chemicals, I'm sure. And I just think about all of these, you know, fad ideas with like, you know, clean beauty and all this. And I'm like, my God, my grandma's 95. She inhaled all this crap when she was working. But you know what? She lived her entire life on her feet, surrounded by family, eating mostly a plant-based diet, not because, you know, because they were working class and couldn't afford a steak meal every freaking night. And, you know, I just think at at some point I I like these conversations because it's so fun to get into the nitty gritty, but it's also nice to just kind of like take a step back and like, let's just take a deep breath and like, look at what really works for people. And maybe we don't need to be so freaking stressed out about every little molecule entering our bodies all of the time. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. We I really I want to meet her. She sounds like the bomb. She's like four Eleanor. feet tall and so oh cute. Oh my God. <laughs> I expect nothing less than a four foot tall No, literally. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But like you know, lived most of her life eating pasta and vegetables. Love it. Like she didn't know what a carb was. She doesn't Love know it. what a carb is. Like she lived her whole life not knowing what a damn carb is. Carb, your body needs carbs. <laughs> oh, I know. And here's the thing. So even when, if anyone, you know, goes and looks at our cardiology, our uh, nutrition paper, our guidelines that we came out with, even that. So even though I, I'm like a robot and that my recommendation is, you know, eat lots of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, lean protein, things like that. That is not prescriptive. Meaning like if you hate whole grains, then don't eat them. That's fine. If you hate, I listen, I'm vegan. I don't eat fish. F- fatty fish is very healthy, but I don't eat it. That's okay. That's fine. If you don't like apples, like even though they're healthy, if you don't like apples, don't eat it. That's fine. That's why we have to understand that there's so it's not as prescriptive as people think and that there's space within this range of finding a healthy dietary pattern to find things you like and eating a piece of chocolate cake or a piece of steak or whatever, you know, here and there is also absolutely not going to harm you, you know, and it's just having like a more broader picture of saying you don't need to force feed your self-health foods that you don't like, but you can find within the realm of evidence, some things that you enjoy. And most important, make sure that it's, you know, something sustainable and enjoyable for you, something that brings you joy and that you can, you know, share with those around that you love, because that's a huge part of our existence with food. I think that was like the perfect way to end the episode. I think that's like, that was beautiful. beautiful. I mean, that's like what everyone needs to hear. Like, don't shame yourself. Just you have Don't to find that. something that works for you. The year we're going to stop shaming, right? Yes. Stop, yeah. Stop shaming ourselves. Stop shaming each other. Like no more shame. I love that. All right, y'all. I think it's official. I think we definitely need to do a trip and open it up to our followers, our listeners. 
everyone that follows me, everyone that follows Jack, everyone that follows Dr. Bellardo, we are gonna we are gonna make some magic happen. We are gonna balance some woo-woo with some like evidence based, some like mental health with some wine. I don't know where it's gonna be, but we're gonna figure it out. And we will definitely keep y'all posted. But until then, thank you for liking and sharing our podcast and continuing to tune in every single week. Seriously, it means the world to Jack and I. We love you so much. We'll see you next week. WOMED out. Ooh.